This morning, we're going to look at the next piece of armor, so I want to invite you to turn to Ephesians 6. Ephesians 6, verse 17. It's not often that uh, a, a preacher gets to only preach one verse, but uh, that's my privilege today. <laughs> so that's, it's hard, and it's different, and, uh, but that's good, good for us. Now, as we continue to dip into each of these different pieces of spiritual armor, we don't want to lose the forest for the trees as we come to these. Um, what we've been learning is that there is a real spiritual battle going on in the invisible realm. And yes, it shows up in the form of people and ideas, but the battle is not with those things that we can see, actually. What's described here is it's the schemes of the devil, it's cosmic powers, it's spiritual forces. And that's why we need a spiritual armor. So I'm going to read uh, 10 to 17. We're, the focus of the sermon will be verse 17, but let's look at verse 10 to 17 just so we can get context. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand firm. Stand, therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. And in all circumstances, take up the shield of faith, with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. Lord, we pray that you would bless the preaching of your word. We're reminded, even as we're going to see, the sword of the Spirit being the word of God, that the grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. And this morning, as we look at your word, may that word, may that voice, may that revelation arrive at our hearts in life-changing ways. We ask for nothing short of that, God. You intend to change our hearts and change our lives, and we invite your word to do that this morning. So may the preaching of the word accomplish its intended effect for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Two questions I want to start with. What's in your head and what's in your hand? Thought about what's in your wallet, but no, we'll just go with what's in your head, what's in your hand. Today we'll be looking at the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit. And as we mentioned, Paul has stressed the reality of the spiritual war going on behind the scenes. And the way the enemy attacks is, you know, it's not always in big, obvious ways. It is that, the, the things that are just very obvious, but it, it can also be in more subtle ways. What's in your head? Because our enemy is scheming and constantly trying to get into our heads. He knows our weaknesses and he will try to exploit that against us. So just want to ask you, where do you hear the enemy's voice in your head? It may be the voice of condemnation. You did it again. God is tired of you. You're such an idiot. You're really going to have to make up for this one. You know, do, do you hear these voices going on in your head? It, 
It may, be, it may sound like that. That's not the only way the enemy attacks, though. The enemy can get inside of our heads in the voice of vain self-confidence as well. You're awesome. You're worth it. You deserve better than what God has for you. You don't need anyone. You're independent. You got this. You're in control. You can do whatever you want. Some, some of these things show up on our, on our walls in, in cute fonts at times. You can create your own reality. You can determine your own destiny. You are great. That's the enemy speaking just as much as the voice of condemnation, isn't it? He tries to get into our heads. I picture the, the scene from Nacho Libre when Ramses, Ramses is preparing to fight and his trainer is massaging him and telling him, Ramses is the best. Ramses is the greatest. Ramses is number one. It's like that's how the enemy works sometimes. It's not always just in the fact that you're worthless. It may be in the fact that you are amazing. And boy, isn't that the language of our culture? Isn't that the savior that our culture offers us? Is self-actualization and self-determined fulfillment. So the enemy uses both tactics to weaken us for the battle. And he uses every combination in between. And so what will guard and protect our minds from these attacks, from, from distraction, from doubt, from discouragement, from despair, from vain self-confidence, from false hope, from thinking that we're fine when we're really not? What will protect us from all of these wrong thoughts? See, our minds so need to be guarded from the enemy. So again, what's in your head? Or maybe more fitting, what's on your head <laughs> this morning? But also, what's in your hand? The text answers that as well. As we buy into these lies that Satan stuffs in our head, that we're really worthless and God hates us on one hand, or that we're really great and God is impressed by us on the other hand, we will be driven, if we believe that, we'll be driven to take up earthly weapons for a spiritual fight. So it won't be the sword of the spirit in my hand, but perhaps the sword of my own making. Right? So that might be human rhetoric or manipulation or insult and attack. Imposing my rules on others and then judging them for not living up to my rules. And, and so on. You know, where are you lashing out in anger at the people or situations that you can't control? Where are you running and hiding when you're not getting what you want? Because both of those things, attack and escape, are substitute swords that we grab for when we fail to see the spiritual reality behind what's happening. They're human tactics for what we think is a human battle. But that's not what this is. Look at verse 12. It reminds us we don't wrestle against flesh and blood. But against rulers and authorities and cosmic powers over this present darkness. Spiritual forces of evil is the way it's described. And so for that kind of fight we need a whole different kind of weaponry don't we? We need a, nothing short of a divine weaponry. And so 2 Corinthians 10.4 shows us the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh. But they have divine power to destroy strongholds. See that means our weapons are not naturally contrived or humanly produced. No, this armor has been crafted with spiritual powers that exceed your ability to use it. And that should give us hope. 
There is a spiritual power behind the weaponry that God offers us that exceeds our skill in being able to use it. And that gives us hope. They're given to us by God, and so they're effective in the fight. And our call in this passage is to take it up, put it on, because your life depends on it. And if you don't, you will be left vulnerable to the attacks and schemes of the enemy. John Stott writes, Wobbly Christians who have no firm foothold in Christ are an easy prey for the devil. And Christians who shake like reeds and rushes cannot resist the wind when the principalities and powers begin to blow. We don't want to be wobbly Christians, do we? Weak Christians? Yes. Yes, we are weak Christians. We don't, we don't uh, pretend that we're not. We are weak. We feel our weakness constantly. Yes. Struggling Christians? Yes. After all, this is pictured as a spiritual battle. It's not a spiritual day at the spa. It's, it's work. It's hard. It, it is those things. But the point of the armor is that in the midst of our struggle and weakness, we can be made to stand firm when we take up the right armor for the right kind of battle. And so the main point I would summarize is just we can stand firm when we guard our minds with the gospel and grasp God's word as our sword. Point number one, just two points, uh, the helmet of salvation, sword of the spirit. So point number one, the helmet of salvation, this is our hope for the future. So let's look at that one first. Now, he's already mentioned the breastplate of righteousness and the shield of faith and the gospel of peace and all of those, as Pastor Hugh explained, point to the salvation that Christ has already accomplished for us. Your salvation, what Jesus has done to save you from your sin and bring you to God, that is in itself is a defense against the powers of darkness. So when he says, take up the helmet of salvation then, is he he just repeating that? Is he saying, let's take up the helmet of salvation, let's go back to all that Jesus has done for us? Is he just repeating the same idea and calling us to guard our minds with the past saving work of Christ? Or is it something more than that? I think it's at least that. But I do think there's an added nuance here that wasn't present in those other three pieces of armor. This phrase, helmet of salvation, shows up again in 1 Thessalonians 5.8, and there, the helmet is described as the hope of salvation. You can see that in your notes, but since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. Now, since Paul has already so clearly referred to the past saving work of Christ as a good weapon against the enemy... I think here, when he says helmet of salvation, in Ephesians 6, it has this future component to it, like we see in 1 Thessalonians 5.8. So, remember, all of this comes under this heading of this call to stand firm in the spiritual battle. Don't give up. Don't give in. The world, your flesh, the devil, these are working overtime to throw you off course and to get you to stop following Jesus. That's the ultimate goal. And it is an intense spiritual battle fought on the turf of our own hearts. And so our future hope of final deliverance, which I think is pictured here in the helmet of salvation, that future hope of final deliverance from the fight is pictured here as a helmet, as something that protects our heads and our minds and our thinking. Why? Because that's how the enemy works, right? He goes after our thoughts. He goes after our minds. 
2 Corinthians 4.4 4 tells us, in their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. That tactic doesn't change when it comes to the believer. He still wants to get into your head and make you think and believe things about yourself that are not right, about God that are not right, about your problem that is not right, about your ultimate deliverance that is not right. He goes after all of those things. He tempts us to think and believe things that are contrary to God's word. He blinds our minds to what God's word really says is true. And he knows, often better than we do, that the pathway to the heart is through the mind. So he wants to rewire our thinking away from God's word and into ourselves. Just think about sin. I mean, sin to us, it often, it often feels, uh, in our experience, it feels impulsive. It feels base level. Even when we apologize, it's often marked by statements of I didn't, some form of I didn't really mean to do it. You know, like when we sin, it, it just happens. And uh, it, it was just impulsive. But re- really, the Bible would disagree. I mean, there is a category for human weakness. But ultimately, sin is a, is a thought process that plays out. Every action, every decision begins with believing something to be true or untrue about God, about ourselves, or about others. And so the enemy will attack us there. He'll plant seeds of doubt and suspicion. Isn't this how it all began in the garden? It began with one question, did God really say? That's still the the, the devil's tactic today. He wants to rewrite the narrative of our lives to get us to live according to a narrative of our own making, really one that he provides, rather than viewing our life and our situation in the narrative that Jesus has determined, the the destination of history, what he's determined as the course for every single believer to change us into the image of Christ and bring us home to himself. So if we think of just really big picture, Bible storyline, the arc of the Bible is, is creation, fall, redemption, and restoration. And Satan comes and tries to retell that story and recast it differently so that we think and believe and live out differently. This plays out in every sinful action we ever do. This plays out in reality whether we realize it or not. So let me show you how that works. The enemy comes in and puts these kinds of thoughts into our heads. This is why we need the helmet of salvation because this is what he's trying to do. Okay? He plants these thoughts of, and we could even see this with parenting. I mean, there's lots of ways this pops up in life, okay? These kind of thoughts. You were not created for God's glory, but really you were created for your own pleasure and satisfaction. And so sin is not really the problem. That's not what's holding you back from pleasure and satisfaction. But actually, actually, it's God and all of his oppressive rules that keep you from finding these things that keep you, or to put it in modern parlance, to keep you from being you and to really discovering your, your true self. 
That's really the problem, is that God and tradition and the Bible are actually working against you. That's the pro- Sin's not the problem, God's the problem. Truth, so-called truth, is the problem. This is what the enemy is wiring our thinking to be like. Jesus, therefore, is not your redemption. Come on. No, it's not Jesus. Going your own way and making sure no one holds you back or stops you, that's ultimately what is going to bring you peace and fulfillment. That's really your redemption. That's really what you need. Eternity with God in heaven, that's not the restoration that your heart longs for. Restoration will come when everyone else finally acknowledges how awesome you are and you're able to rise above everything and everyone who has sought to push you down. That's your heaven on earth that, you're, that all of this is heading for. So you see, if, if these thoughts are, are in our heads, consciously or subconsciously, and we're thinking that, it can explain a lot of our struggles. It can explain... Every sin, if you, if you pull on the thread of a particular sinful situation, you're going to end up at some piece of that narrative, somewhere, some way, only to discover that we're living our lives out of a narrative that has been put there by the enemy, by our flesh, by the devil, when what, the way God changes us is by reorienting us onto a new path along a new narrative, one that... Jesus defines for us. But that's just an example of how the devil lies to us and gets us to believe a certain narrative about ourselves and about our situation and about other people so that uh, we can live and act according to that. But that's what it is. It's just, it's just a lie. It's not rooted in anything, actually. Satan's lies may have a semblance of hope, but they don't offer any real hope. And sadly, we as Christians can even turn to these things for our hope. But by comparison, any other so-called hope will not actually protect us in the battle, will it? It won't. Instead, it actually makes us vulnerable. Because we think we have protection. We, we think that we've built a wall of protection. We've built a fortress, maybe, around our hearts. But it may keep people out. But it's not going to keep the enemy out. The only thing that keeps the enemy out and provides the protection we need is the armor that God himself provides, not the self-constructed armor of our own making. And that's what we need. That's what we're offered in the helmet of salvation. Now, if you're at home and I'm playing with my kids at home and and maybe we make uh, cardboard swords and we construct helmets out of paper um, and that can be fun, fun to play with and, and things to do, and, that, and that's fine. But if you show up right now in Afghanistan on a rescue mission wearing that, it's not going to work, right? I mean, obviously. As Pastor Billy pointed out in the first sermon from this, and his introduction was so, so well-crafted, is everything changes when you're being shot at. <laughs> so the problem is we don't often realize the ways that we're being shot at. And so what, what happens is that we, we, we can take paper helmets to a, a real gunfight. We can, we can think that what we're dealing with is not as serious as it actually is. What paper helmets are you turning to that, thinking that those will protect you? But instead, realize what we're offered here. Even as we come to verse 17, the language changes. So before it says imperative, put on the command taking, taking, 
you know, it's all these participles, but then here it goes, it shifts back to an imperative in verse 17, and take the helmet. In other words, take it, uh, actually in the Greek, take can also mean receive. There's this, take it, but receive it. It's a, receive this helmet. It's being given to you. And so, Christian, this is what I want you to be, be filled with hope with, is that you are being given a helmet that is indestructible. It's not made out of cardboard paper. It's made, if you would, it's a, this is a, like a vibranium helmet. Nothing can shatter it. Nothing can break through it. And God the Father has asked you to put it on. And so to do so, that, that's going to mean discarding, removing the other false hope helmets that maybe we've turned to and relied on. And instead, take on this one. Wearing the helmet of salvation as our hope means being confident about our future. So what does it look like to do this? What does it look like to put that helmet on? It looks like confidence about the future of our final salvation. It's not confidence that we'll receive material blessings or that we will uh, be exempt from suffering and harm if we just have more faith. Our hope is future when there will be full and final deliverance one day. We sing the song, when faced with trials on every side, we know the outcome is secure. Certainty of the future strengthens us for the battle today, does it not? Moses, we're told in Hebrews, considered the reproaches of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt. How did he come to that conclusion? Hebrews tells us, because he was looking to the reward. See that? He looked to the future hope of salvation that he had, and that caused him to weigh the treasures of Egypt against the treasures of Christ, and the treasures of Egypt came up lacking. How do we, how do we battle sin? How do we battle temptation? That's one way right there. Looking ahead to his reward, he concluded that the treasures of Egypt were worthless. That is what it means to put on the helmet of salvation. That's it. That's our hope. So let that hope guard your mind in the spiritual battles of today. Now, how do, how do we do this? Let's just get real practical. How do we actually take up the helmet of our future hope-filled salvation? Well, a few, few ways. First, be saved. Be saved. Apart from Jesus, apart from faith in Jesus, turning from sin, putting your faith in Jesus, apart from that, you will be left exposed and vulnerable to the enemy's attacks and ultimately the enemy's control. We are slaves to sin, slaves to the devil. Jesus told the Pharisees, you're, you're of your father, the devil. That's who we belong to when we're not sheltered under the righteousness of Christ and sitting at a table in Christ's family. The only way there is not the ticket of your own righteousness. No, it's the ticket of the blood of Christ that brings us to God the Father, that removes our sin, that absorbs God's wrath that was directed towards us. Jesus takes it as our substitute. And he says, you can be my son. You can be my daughter. So the first way to put on the helmet of salvation is to get saved, to come to Jesus in faith, turning from sin, turning from self-reliance, and casting yourself into the arms of Jesus. That's one way. That's the first way. But of course, the Christian life is a continued casting ourselves upon Jesus, isn't it? And so as we go on in the Christian life, we assure our hearts of the future hope that we have. And we get that from God's word on a regular basis. Now, we're nearing the end of the year. I hope 
Many of you are just beginning to think of a Bible reading plan come January. Holidays are coming. Everything's going to be crazy. Do you have a disciplined plan to make sure that you're encountering God in his word on a regular basis? Don't wait till 1231 to do that. This is a great time to start thinking about that. Let's be strategic. This is, this is how you put on that helmet of salvation. I need to fill my mind and heart with the future hope that I have from God. Where am I going to get that? I'm going to get it from God's word. That means I want to be there. I want to be taking it in and looking for it and mining it out and being in front of it on a regular basis. Next, another way we do that is by gathering with the church to sing about our future hope. We sang this morning, when I fear my faith will fail. Love those lines. And even towards the end of the song, we, we, it concludes, I, love the, I always love the, the closing verses of our hymns, till our faith is turned to sight when he comes at last. See, when we sing that, we are putting on the helmet of our hope of salvation. We're assuring our hearts about the future hope that we have in Jesus And so we want these truths to surround our minds like a helmet so that doubts and false thoughts about Christ are kept out. That's how God intends to use even the songs we sing when we gather together as a church to build our faith, to strengthen us so that we can stand firm in the day of battle. Also, just personally, we can be bringing our guilt and weakness to God. Do you ever get discouraged that the battle rages and you don't seem to be making progress, maybe personally, maybe just in your marriage or with a wayward child or with another disappointing church experience. Oh, take up the helmet of salvation. What he begins, he is faithful to complete. Don't expect full deliverance in the here and now. No, but, but it is coming. It is coming. First John 3, 2 says, beloved, we are God's children now. Oh man, just let that soak in. We are God's children now, but it gets better. Look at the next thing. And what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. What a wonderful truth to remind us to help us put on the helmet of salvation. I mean, when I think of the struggles that I have, the the temptations that I still face, the conflicts that I have with my wife, all the ways that I get distracted from obeying the Lord. Man, it can be downright discouraging. But God gives me this helmet of salvation and he tells me to put it on. Take up the helmet of salvation. So that means putting, putting that helmet on as I'm a Christian God has saved me. God has made me a new creation. He has placed me in his family. He has loved me with an everlasting love. And there isn't any job that he starts that he's not going to finish. There is a home waiting for me in heaven. And there my hope lies. That's where my life is headed. When, when, when he shall come with trumpet sound, we sing, faultless to stand before the throne. And what a great line from the, the song, The Solid Rock. That is a good helmet. One day, he will come with trumpet sound. Oh, may I then in him be found, dressed in his righteousness alone, faultless to stand before the throne. I fill my head with that because that's what it means to put on 
the helmet of salvation. That's how the thoughts of the enemy and the narrative lies that he tells are driven out. They're driven out by truth. And so good songs and scripture intake and Bible can get us there. It's what it means to stand firm by guarding our minds with the helmet of salvation. Point number two is the sword of the spirit. Confidence in God's word. Now, as we come to this one, this piece of armor, there's a slight change. Up to this point, all of the armor has been primarily defensive. But this one piece of armor is actually both. It's offensive and there's an, it's defensive and there's an offensive component to it as well. We're told here that it is the sword of the spirit. Now, that means it is the spirit's sword. While it's true that the word of God is a sword, and we're told that here, it's interesting that Paul does not describe it as simply the sword of the word of God. He doesn't say that. It's the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. So what is the spirit's role here? Why does he bring that out in this description? Well, the spirit is the one who makes the word effective. He's the one that drives it home. He makes Hebrews 4.12 a reality. Hebrews 4.12 is, says this, For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. That's the kind of sword that the word of God is. So even in Greek, there's two different words for sword. One would be a, a big, long, Mandalorian-looking sword. And the other would be a shorter sword that was more used in hand-to-hand combat. And the precision of that sword is what's pictured there in Hebrews 4.12. And it's also the same word that is used in Hebrews, I mean, Ephesians 6. So while the sword is placed in our hands, it's the Holy Spirit who is giving and granting the precision to make this sword effective in our hands. The word of God, which is scripture, that's the instrument, that's the weapon, the tool you might say, that the spirit uses in the hand of the believer to defend against the enemy's attack and to injure and weaken his cause. It's the spirit's sword. We don't bring any power to the sword. (laughs) It's the spirit who grants its effectiveness. So it is the spirit sword. Next, it's the, it, the sword is the Bible in action. Let me explain what I mean there. Elsewhere in scripture, we're told about the essence of the Bible, what it actually is. But here, both contextually and in the Greek, the, the word refers more to the Bible in action. Not just what it is, but what the Bible does is the point. He's already talked about the belt of truth after all. He's not just repeating himself here and referring to just God's truth in general. The truth of God's word is everything that we just saw in Hebrews 4.12. It, it is that. But, and it is everything that we see in 2 Timothy 3.16, that it's breathed out by God and profitable for teaching and reproof and correction and training in righteousness. It is all of those things. But here, think of it as this. This is God's word on the move. This is God's word on the move in the hand of the spirit who is wielding it for effectiveness. So, in fact, 2 Timothy 3.17 goes on to say that the word of God is these things so that the man of God may be equipped for every good work. Complete and equipped for every good work. So, 
It's not just the ontological reality of God's word in its essence. The Bible has a lot to say about that, but it's God's word proclaimed. It's taking action in the hearts and mouths of God's people that's in view here. That is, there's what God's word is and there's what God's word does. And the word here refers to what God's word does. So I thought of it as, as kind of like um, the difference between potential energy and kinetic energy. So potential energy is the, the, the force and energy that an object could have, but it doesn't actually have it until it's acted upon by some outside force. And so kinetic energy is, is the actual energy in motion. It's actual movement. And it's kind of the same thing. There's a lot we can say about the potential energy of the Bible. But what's in view here is a kinetic energy. And since Ephesians 6 is a call to stand firm in a spiritual battle, to receive this sword is going to, it means we have to go beyond merely analyzing its potentiality and even admiring it. It means we put it to work. It's like if there was a beautiful sword uh, hanging on a wall. That in a museum and we admire it or maybe it's in a sheath and you have your friends over at a party and you, you pull out this cool knife and you're showing it off. I mean that, that's one thing but as I mentioned before everything changes when you're being shot at. This isn't just a sword on the wall or a sword in the sheath. This is a sword that is functioning as it intended and that's the sword that we've been given. It is to take it off the wall where it was hanging or out of the sheath where it had great potential and to put it to good use. So this sword then is the word of God and its right and proper use in a given situation. Isn't this how Jesus used the sword of the word when he was tempted in the wilderness? He didn't just open his Bible promise box and shuffle through and pull one out randomly. He precisely used God's word You could turn these stones to bread. You haven't eaten in 40 days. That would be nice. Man doesn't live by bread alone. See, he's he's wielding the sword of the spirit with precision and making sure that God's word has its intended effect in a given situation. So when we, we stand firm as well, when we grasp this sword and put it to use in a similar way. Now let's do this. I want to demonstrate for you how this can happen in a very practical way. Few few areas here. Let's just take the first one, the area of temptation. So how does this show up? How does the sword of the Spirit show up in the area of temptation? Whether that be just worldly allurements, temptation, lust, greed, jealousy. You know, fill in the blank with your temptation. To to for for illustration purposes, I think it's we will, I will illustrate it here with lust, a struggle that's common to, to men and women. The word of God tells me, so you picture you're being tempted, lust, whether it's something else. You're, the moment of temptation has arrived. How do you wield the sword of the spirit in that moment? Here we go. The word of God tells me that this is destructive, that it will grieve God, that this will bring reproach on the name of Christ. It dishonors my wife. Its end is destruction. It is a fleeting pleasure of sin that will continue to demand more of me until it has sapped me dry. I bring in Proverbs 6.27. Do you really think a man can carry fire next to his chest and clothes and not be burned? 
And whatever I think that I may be giving up and saying no to this pleasure and to this temptation is actually no loss at all when I remember that I have Christ. He is the answer to every longing of my heart. There is no lasting pleasure in this sin. And Psalm 1611 comes to my rescue as well. He makes known to me the path of life. And the path of life is not this sin. In his presence, there is fullness of joy. And at his right hand are pleasures forevermore. There is no lasting pleasure in caving in to temptation. God, help me believe this now in this moment. See, this is how we wield the sword of the spirit in the moment of temptation. Easier said than done. I get it. Easier said than done. But we're called to stand firm and to take up this sword. And so are you wielding that sword in the midst of temptation? You've been given that sword. May it not hang on the wall. But let's put it to good use. Secondly, we wield the sword in evangelism. Psalm 119, 130. Great passage. The unfolding of your word gives light. It gives light. But as we use the sword in this way, and we saw all of the ways that it it brings, it exposes men's hearts and convicts of sin and all of that. As we use the sword in evangelism, we must remember verse 12 from our passage, that we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against spiritual forces. Max Turner writes, we are fighting the spiritual powers, not human enemies. And our use of the sword of the spirit has to reflect this. Else it will become a weapon of darkness, enmity, and division instead. Think about that. Even when the enemy's lies, philosophies, and ideologies and attacks are coming through people, and the Bible would call such people evil people, yes, but we must remember that people themselves are not the enemy. That's what Ephesians 6.12 is telling us. The armor is not given to protect us against evil people, but against spiritual forces in the heavenly places. Yes, often coming through evil people, but we must see behind the scenes of the reality as God sees it. And the sword must be wielded in light of verse 12 and in light of verse 15, strapping on the shoes of the readiness given by the gospel of peace. Now that's interesting. You got a sword in one hand and talking about peace at the same time. Let's just remember, man, those who remain captive to the will of Satan are not the enemy. Though outwardly, they may speak forth his lies. Behind the curtain, in the spiritual realm... Ephesians 6 is showing us, just like Daniel 10 showed us when we went through Daniel, there is something else that's really going on. That's why it's so so important to understand that this is a spiritual battle. It's not human or earthly. That's a critical distinction that pushes against our natural tendencies to just see things reductionistically or naturally. As soon as we lose sight of this distinction, then we think the problem is really these dumb people out there. And you know what happens as soon as we misdiagnose the problem? Well, we also misdiagnose the solution. We will reach for their weapons in the fight rather than the weapons given to us here. We will resort to human rhetoric and attack where volume and energy and passion become the most powerful weapon we can pull out because we've discarded the weapons the Lord has given us. And we fight on their own terms. That's not standing firm. That's really taking their shoes and trying to run next to them at their own battle. 
this text is calling us to something entirely different. The sword of the Spirit also applies in caring for others and in discipleship. Let's hit this one briefly. Another glorious and central truth really all over Ephesians is how we are united to one another in this fight. Isn't that good? We're not left to ourselves. We're not lone soldiers standing in the middle of the field ramboing ourselves to victory. We're given one another. We help each other in the spiritual battle. As someone's sharing a struggle with you, you can take up the sword of the Spirit to help them in their fight. And you can do it just by asking this simple question. How can God's word come to bear in this person's situation right now? This is a good, simple question to ask. How can God's word come to bear right now in a way that helps this person, the way that sustains them, that meets them in their need? How can God's word come to bear right now? How can I help this person grasp the sword of God's word for their fight so that they can stand firm? See, when we're asking that, we're letting the intended effect of this passage come to bear. Because remember, the whole point of all this is God wants us to stand firm and he's given his armor to be able to do it. So we're just asking the question, okay, what, what piece of armor is going to help this person stand firm in this situation? Because that's how we'll do it, with minds guarded by the gospel, with, sword of, with the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, firmly grasped in our own hands. And that gives us confidence, that gives us hope for the future. So, in wrapping it up, what's in your head and what's in your hand? So are you weary in the fight? Do you feel your foot slipping at times? Do you feel like you're getting wobbly? There's just something about John Stott saying wobbly. Like this high statesman, theologian, British, you know, super smart guy, wobbly. Do you feel yourself getting wobbly? Maybe it's because you've settled for other armor. Armor that's really no armor at all. Well, the Lord wants to help you stand firm. He's given you a helmet of salvation for you to guard your head. He's placed the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, in your hand, and that sword is unlike any other. Maybe you think you're standing firm just fine on your own. Thank you very much. Well, this passage sobers us should sober you by the reality that spiritual forces are at play seeking to sabotage you when you least expect it. You who think you stand, take heed lest you fall. You too need to lay down your own paper armor and receive the protection offered to you in the gospel and in God's word because in a spiritual battle, nothing else will do, really. You will not stand firm if your mind is not guarded with this helmet of salvation and your hand is not firmly gripped on the Spirit's sword, which is the Word of God, this is what we need for the fight. Joshua, you can come up if you have a closing song at this point. I think it'd be good to sing after this. I want to end with this note, and this is really where the helmet of salvation, just bringing that out one step further. So long as we live on this earth, if we're seeking to serve and follow Jesus, we will be engaged in this fight. But as the helmet of, we would add, final salvation reminds us, one day we will no longer need armor. One day God will receive us into his kingdom where this armor will be removed. 
and we will be clothed in robes of glory. The battle will be over and we will bask in, in the good that Jesus' victory has accomplished for us. Victory over every sin. Victory over all of those descriptors in verses 10 to 13 of spiritual forces of evil. We will no longer be pilgrims traversing through what feels like enemy-occupied territory all the time with the flaming darts of the enemy coming at us. No, we will be home. And this is our hope. Until then, we can stand firm with our minds guarded by this gospel hope and with our hands firmly grasping God's word. May God help it make it become reality for each of us. Amen. Let's stand.